Hello? A little bit, maybe? That's all right. I'll talk loud. <laughs> all right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for what a glorious opportunity we have to come and sit at your teaching, Father. And just as in the passage that we will read this this morning was concerning the the teaching of your word, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to hear your teaching. I pray that your words would speak truth into our lives and that truth would transform us by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would make our hearts sensitive to hear your word and, and our minds willing to receive it, Father. And I pray that it would bring about transforming grace into our lives. Lord, I pray that with it we would not hold on to it and hide it, Father, but that you would give us what we need to take it and share it with those who are around us. We would not conceal the grace and the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that in all that is said and done this morning, that your name would be glorified, Father. Lord, I pray that you would use me, Lord, a lowly man, to communicate the glorious truth that you have taught to us by your Son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. You may be seated. So we jump right back in to our portion of Scripture here found in Mark 12, 35 and 37. Where we can't disconnect it because it's greatly united with the uh, former passages that have been taught by Jared, Mark, uh, and David. Um, but as we open into the scene of what's going on here, all the way back in Mark 12, 12, so a little bit earlier in this chapter, the scribes and the Pharisees set out to set a trap for Jesus. They set out to bring questions before Him, and if they could get Him to answer wrongly, or could get Him to answer in such a way that the people would turn against Him, then they would be able to entrap Him and do what they wanted to with him, which is, as we'll see later, put him to death. <clears throat> so they bring about three questions before Jesus. First was brought to him by the Pharisees and the Herodians. The question was, is it lawful to pay to Caesar, uh, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus answers, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's was shared graciously, preached to us a few weeks ago, showing that what was important is not what you give to Caesar, for we must pay to Caesar, and it is lawful to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but what is more important is what you give to God. Christ asked the question, whose image is on you? God's image is on us. Let us render to God our lives. Next, the Sadducees were up. They asked the question of the woman who married a man and had no offspring, and he dies, so then she marries that man's brother, as was the, uh, custom according to uh, Mosaic tradition. And still, she had no offspring when he dies. And she repeats this process and um, gets married to all the brothers until eventually she dies with no offsprings. And the Sadducees ask the question, um, in heaven, or in the resurrection, whose um, husband will be hers? Whose wife will she be? Was Jesus' Jesus's response is, Is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? Jesus is telling them uh, that they are greatly un, 
underestimating and misunderstanding the power of God. That God is fully able and equipped to make the resurrection and what He will do in the resurrection will be far beyond the things that we have now. That God is able to create a new way, a new way of being. There will no longer be a need for um, reproduction and procreation and um, things of that nature. And so God will be making things new in the resurrection. And so, quite frankly, his response to them was, well, you're just way off. (laughs) That's wrong. That's not how it is. And finally, he answers the scribes. The scribes uh, ask the question of, which commandment is the most important of all? Christ's response, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is summarizing in this in these two commandments all the law and the prophets. What does that mean? All that God has taught in His law and all that He has brought to the people by the prophets is summed up in loving the Lord and loving your neighbor. If we'll obey those things, then we will be obedient to the law. The idea is not that we get rid of the law. We say, oh, well, none of those things are useful. Let's trash all those ideas and principles. No, Christ says... If you will love the Lord and your neighbor, you will fulfill the law. That is what is most important. So while simultaneously pointing out the truth of the law that he brings about, he also absolutely incapacitates man from being able to be righteous before God. As David uh, taught us last week, that no man has loved the Lord with all of his heart, all of his soul, and all of his mind and all of his strength a day in his life. And thus we are in need of a Christ. We are in need of a Savior who fulfilled that. He did that exact thing. It is, it is so amazing to think of the glory of Christ when we consider the idea that we have not for one second fulfilled that command and Christ for not one second did not fulfill that command. Christ absolutely did and he is our hope. So they asked three types of questions. First, a matter of civil law taxes then a matter of ceremonial law, marriage, and then finally, a matter of moral law, conduct. What is the greatest command? What should we do? How should we live? These were the questions that all the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees brought before Jesus. And Jesus answers them flawlessly, leaving the Pharisees, or Jesus answers it flawlessly, leaving the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes in shambles as their snares are rendered useless against his vast knowledge and understanding of the ways and the things of God. As Jesus continues to teach in the temple, so now we find ourselves in our passage. Still the same course of events are going on here. Jesus continues to to, uh, teach in the temple, but now it shifts. For the three times the scribes and uh, religious leaders of that day were unable to render Christ without an answer or to turn the people against Him because of His gracious answers in return. And now, Jesus is turning the tables and He will ask them a question and they shall answer Him. What an important pivotal moment here where now He's no longer playing defense, but He turns to the offense with a question of His own. So Jesus asked the question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? Notice two things here. Jesus does not ask a question of duty. 
a question concerning law, like the scribes did. Jesus asked a question not of duty, but of identity. The question Christ is posing is who is the, who is the Christ? You see, we so often like to uh, get entangled in the what we must do. And we forget that the gospel is not about what we must do. It's about what someone did for us. It's about what Christ did for us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Scripture does not teach that there are things that we, are, that we must do. But if we forget the one in whom we do them for, then we are without the gospel. This is exactly the kind of thing that strips religious leaders, like the scribes and Pharisees, and similarly of our day, of all pride, of self-righteousness, and false teaching. No man can stand whenever we realize that the truth of the gospel is about putting our faith in Christ, not just about obeying commands that Jesus has given us. Secondly, Jesus is challenging the conventional understanding of the doctrine that the scribes held concerning the Son of David, Christ. What Jesus is going to point out here is that what the scribes mean when they say the Messiah is the Son of David is that the Messiah would be just a man. They saw the Messiah, uh, they saw it as the Messiah would be just like David or just like Solomon, a man of great power. He would come and deliver God's people from the oppression of the Gentiles, establish his kingdom and rule, and he would reign and conquer for the kingdom of our God. Now Jesus presents them with this question that brings them into account of what they have taught the people. How does he do this? Well, he turns to the Scripture. So he goes on to say, David himself and the Holy Spirit declare. This is important. What Christ is doing as he's communicating, because he is not only questioning the scribes, but he's also setting before a great throng of people, as it explains later in this text. So it is not just the scribes at which he wants to understand and hear, it is the people. So he clarifies and to those who might not be as educated or studied as the scribes, he makes a clarification here that David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Jesus is confessing that these words of, of David that we find in this psalm are the inspired words of God. They are not just some wisdom literature. They're not just tradition that what Christ is about to speak here is the truth of God's word. So he goes on to quote here, Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, this wording here in, in our English text can be a little bit confusing, so I'll take a brief moment to clarify. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, that could be a little bit confusing about who is talking to who here. The reason your English Bible... Uh, translates that to the Lord and Lord, is because in the uh, Greek New Testament, the word used is kurios, which is Lord, means Lord. It's a word that means Lord or attributes a a divine authority to an individual. But if you go back to the Old Testament, if we go to the psalm in Hebrew, there's a little bit more clarity in the Hebrew. The two words used are Yahweh and Adonai. So in English, it might more clearly be interpreted 
as God said to my Lord. So if we reread it, it says, God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The scribes would have known this to be true. So Jesus has not just presented the scribes with a question and not just a question of scripture reference to battle, but Jesus presented a question to them that they must now bring an answer to him. He has placed the inspired word in its clearest form at their feet and asked what they will do. Now Jesus expands on the question, <clears throat> on the question, in case there was any confusion on what he is saying. He goes on to say, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David when David himself calls him Lord? Jaden, your dad would never call you Lord, would he? No, it's not fitting, right? For he's your father. If anything, you might be helpful for to walk up to him and say, My Lord, how may I take out the chores today? That might be helpful. Right? So Jesus pointing out the question here. There seems to be a little bit of a, a weird situation going on. How could David say to the Christ, My Lord? And remember the context of the question, the question, the original question, how can you say that the Christ is the son of David? So Jesus is making a connection between the lineage of Christ to David, being a descendant of David, being the descendant of not only just David the man, but the king David. He's making a connection there. But how could this father king say to his descendant son, my Lord? You see, the idea, the word used, my Lord, in this time was taken very, very seriously. It was used as a form that slaves would tell to their masters as a extreme, um, and I wouldn't even see, say extreme because it was more normal there, but it was a very humble way of honoring those who were in authority over you and saying, you know, what must I do? The word Lord could be in, interpreted, interpreted to master, so master, what would you have me do? A slave would say to his owner. Or as David says, to his Lord, master. It's fitting that David would call God master. So how is he his son? How is the Christ David's son? If the Christ is David's Lord, is he still his son? Is, is the Christ David's son... Or, if the Christ is David's son, or is he his Lord? The answer is both. Christ is both the son and the Lord of David. So let's examine this idea for a little bit. Where does the idea of Christ being the son of David come from? If you'll turn with me in your Bibles real quick to 2 Samuel 7, 12 and through 14. 2 Samuel 7. 12 through 14. A time came when David had found rest from his enemies, warring against his enemies and um, fighting against them. And in this time, uh, David then approached the, approaches the prophet Nathan and tells him um, of his concern, of his distraught soul that the covenant or the ark of God still remains in a tent while David, king, sets in a house of cedar. This bothered David. 
So he brings this before Nathan, and Nathan then later returns with a prophecy from God, a word from God. In that word from God, he says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish your kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Now, some of you who are, who are well-read in the Scriptures may ask the question, wait, wasn't this prophecy concerning Solomon, David's son? Yes, it was. But we know that this was a double prophecy referring not only to Solomon, but was more fully fulfilled in Christ. How do we know that? One, because although Solomon fulfilled what the prophecy said about him, he did not fulfill them forever, so there was still need of an eternal king a king whose kingdom would never end. We also know this because in Hebrews 1.5, the writer of Hebrews refers back to this very text to refer and talk about the Son, when he's explaining that the Son who came was greater, is greater than the angels, is greater than men, is greater than all kings. So we know this prophecy applies to Solomon, but it is more fully complete in Christ. The Jews understood this. So the Jews were always waiting for the one who would come from the lineage of David and would be and would establish a kingdom forever, a kingdom that would never end. If this man is simply the lineage and physical descendant of David, how can this man be David's Lord? This is the question Jesus is asking them. Jesus is asking the scribes. If you're so smart, why don't you tell me the answer to this one? The only way the Christ would be the descendant of David, but still Lord over him, is if there was something about this man that made him greater than the one before him, his father. The only way that David could refer to the Christ as Lord, if there was something about that Christ, that descendant, that inherently made him greater than David. And what is that? Well, to answer quite simply, he is not only fully man, but fully God. This man was especially chosen by God. Christ was specifically chosen by God. This Christ would not be the Son of God by adoption through faith, but would be the only begotten Son of God, from God Himself. By this, the Christ would be fully man and fully God, thus able to maintain the kingship of God forever, perfectly uphold the plans of God, and perfectly please the Father in all that He would do, uphold that commandment Christ had just given them. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor at yourself. There would need to be one who could do that, And that is this Christ. Unlike Solomon, this man would not need the discipline of the Lord by men for his iniquity. For there was no sin within Christ. He had no iniquity. 
Yet still he would suffer the iniquity of his people to serve as their atonement. If this man is God, then that means he is also king over his people. We must consider that this is not just an example of a father telling his son. It's not merely that. It's twofold. Because David was not only a father, but he was also a king. There was no one over David who he would bow the knee to other than God. He was chosen by God to be king. He was chosen by God to be ruler over the people. No one, David should call no one Lord. But yet he called the Christ Lord. Why? Jesus is pointing out here because the Christ would not only be a king, but he would be a greater king. A better king. A righteous king. This was not just another father calling his son um, Lord. It was a king calling a greater king Lord. So remember the question of the scribes. They were, what should we do and how will it be? Right? These were the kinds of questions that the scribes and the Pharisees were asking. What is it that we should do? Right? What is the greatest commandment? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? What will it be like after the resurrection? But Jesus answers with a better question. In a very clever and wise way, Christ asks, Who am I? Who do you say that I am? Think about that. That's a familiar question, isn't it? He not too long ago asked Peter the same thing. He asked Peter... Uh, back in, where was it? Uh, chapter 8, starting verse 27. Jesus asked Peter, who do the people say that I am? And what did they say? A prophet. You know, the people say you're a prophet. Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Do you see the difference between the types of attitude that the religious leaders were having towards Christ and the type of questions that were coming as opposed to the types of question that Christ emphasizes is most important. Who do you say that I am? He asked Peter. Peter's response, you are the Christ. Jesus is showing the scribes the hypocrisy of their own schemes. They come before him asking these great doctrinal questions in an attempt to catch Jesus in a snare... not to truly learn who He is. They had little concern with Jesus' answers. We know that. Mark 12, 12 told us that. They weren't here to really learn some good doctrinal truth, to really hear and understand the ways of God, because they were not concerned with whom it was they were teaching. All they were concerned with was getting their way, keeping their power and authority, not losing it to this man who has now come, riding triumphantly into their city, as a king. They did not want to learn from Jesus. They did not want to know who he was. They wanted to turn the people against him, lest they lose their power. So who is Christ saying, how could David say this? How could David call the Christ my Lord? The answer, the Christ is a greater king. He is greater than David. He is the true king, the eternal king, 
the everlasting King. He is the one who has come to bring about a kingdom that will never end. He rode into Jerusalem, praised as a king, and now he stands before the scribes and the Pharisees, declaring himself to be king. And it tells us that the great throng heard him gladly. This is exactly what people who cheering on their king and coming into a city would, it, would rejoice to hear him say that the true king has come. You see, the people were excited, right? They had, just, they had just followed. They heard of him coming. They saw him riding on the donkey. They all come out there and bring palm leaves and branches and lay him before his feet. And he rides in and they begin to cheer and excitement. That the Messiah has come. And now here He is, flawlessly and perfectly answering all the questions that the Pharisees could bring before Him. That the religious leaders could present before Him. And now He asks them a question, and they are unable to answer. I think it's interesting how they didn't answer. It never says that they answered. Why? Because they didn't, of course, they would not want to confess what was right before them. Of course, they would want to deny who was standing in their very midst and especially not admit it in front of the people. I'm sure there were a few there, I have no idea how many, who might have known who this was. They might have known this was the Christ. In fact, I suspect that some of them did, but they rejected Him. They didn't want Him. And so the last thing they would do is admit. But the crowd hearing this rejoiced gladly. Their Savior, their Deliverer, had come. The one whom they cheered into the city has now stood before the greatest religious minds of our time unfazed. And he presents them with a question that only preaches of the true reality of who is standing before them. The one who is greater than David. The one who is the descendant of David, but yet is greater than him. The one who is a king like David, but is the greater king. The one who will establish a kingdom and unlike David, It will never end. What a glorious truth that these people are hearing before their eyes. That their King has come. So when we think of all of this that's happening, begs the question, how does this apply to us? What does this mean for us? I think we can glean a few things from this portion of Scripture. One, Beware the scholars and the unbelieving theologians, the self-righteous religious leaders. Beware their tricks and schemes. How they will so quickly put themselves in the judgment seat of moral high ground and judge your God as though He is to give an account to them for morality. Not realizing He is the one who established morality Himself not realizing that in all their clever and self-glorifying, they have become completely blind to who He is. I see this all the time. All the time. You may have seen it. If you tried to share the Gospel with somebody you have gone out and see, if you look in the um, religious, uh, what would you call it, scholarly sectors of the world, you'll find all kinds of questions like, if God is love, how could He allow evil? If God is love, how could He hate homosexuals? If this is true, how could God be this if He's this, right? 
What are they doing when they ask questions like that? They're saying, I understand the standard of morality. I understand the standard. I set the standard. I know it. So you tell me how your God gives me an answer. We see this all the time. But I love to be the bearer of good news to those who are being saved and of terrible news to those who are perishing. But Christ is king, not men. Christ is wisdom. Christ is truth. And He is the distributor of that truth. And because He is King, and because He has come as King, He is not only the judge, but He is also the jury and the executioner. We must know the Word of God so we will be ready to see through the schemes of those who hate God and hold them to account of the Word of truth. The beauty of the Word of God, as we see here in our text, is it shuts down every lie that the devil can bring against it. We see that they brought questions to Jesus, and Jesus brings a question to them. Where is the question from? Scripture itself. And they're left without response. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are, uh, not, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is the command of God to us today. What are we to do? Know the Word. Know our King. So when those who desire to bring Him low to hold Him to account, we can point the truth out and stand firm on God's Word. And destroy every lofty opinion that man attempts to raise against God. That is exactly what Christ has done in the chapter that we have read so far. Men have raised lofty opinions against Christ. And He has destroyed them by the word of truth. Our hope is not in what we do. Oh, and secondly, the second application that this has for us is our, our hope is not in what we do, but in whom we know. There is a measure of morality, there is no measure of morality which can save you. There is no measure of what... Hear this. There is no amount of God's Word that you can know that will save you. There is no amount of the commands of God that you can know that will save you. It is only if you have faith in whom it talks about. In the One. We must go to the Word to know our Christ. But if we go there to find a path of righteousness before God, we will only find despair. We will only find that by the, what the truth of God's Word confesses to us is that there is no righteousness that we have to stand on other than Christ's gift of righteousness to us. How quick we are to pat ourselves on the back sometimes for our obedience to the Word. I'm a good Christian. I make it to church on most Sundays. I sit near the front. I greet my fellow brothers kindly. I even offer to help at most church events. Beware the devil's snares of self-righteousness. Our thoughts tend to lead us astray. We may have thoughts. I've been here. I've had thoughts like, God, why could you allow this to happen to me? God, do I not serve you enough? How could I be here? God, why can't I have the nice things that so-and-so has? I give, I serve. Why have you allowed me to 
suffer more. And so quickly, we become ensnared in our own thoughts of self-righteousness. I'll give you an even more sneaky snare, the snare of the one who knows much of Christ, but but knows Him not. I always worry about these people the most. I see them all the time in religious groups and in churches even. They can answer every Bible question so flawlessly, but they bear no fruit of having knowledge of who their king is. They know all the things that Christian uh, that Christ has commanded, but, knew no, but do none of them out of love for God and love for neighbor. Even the things they actually do are only done out of a desire to proclaim their own righteousness before God, not to proclaim their thankfulness to a God who has saved them. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. If you do not know whom Christ is, you will never serve Him as your true King with your life. And if your life preaches that you do not serve Him as King and honor Him as Lord, it is evidence that you do not know Him. And finally, the third thing we can glean from this text, which I think is the greatest. This is to which the crowd was Glad to hear. Rejoice, your king has come. This is the one the long prophesied about. We have, a, we have an, a beautiful sense at which Christ has come and is still coming. We know Christ has come. He came and died on the cross and testified to God. We know this. But yet we too are so eager and we await for the day of His second coming. Right? We know there is still ahead of us a day which Christ will come. We'll know this, that in all fullness of power and glory, your King has come, and His kingdom has been established. As He entered the east gate of Jerusalem on a donkey and broke down the lies of Satan and the scribes, and humbly went to that cross and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, He has ascended and established His kingdom. And His kingdom shall never end. As we're told by John in Revelation, he sees the king, he saw the kingdom of God coming down out of heaven as a bride prepared for her, for her groom. The church is the bride of Christ. The kingdom has come. He has come as our greater king, our better king, and he shall rule over his people with mercy and grace and bring judgment upon those who reject him. Our king has come. Let us be glad. Let us be like those who were shouting in excitement of their Messiah as He rode into the gate. Let us be those who, when we hear the teaching of God's Word and we hear the truth, the, the infallible truth, the, the truth that breaks down every lie of the enemy, that we rejoice. We get glad in this. Let our hearts sing of the glory of God. And let the truth that our King has come inspire us and encourage us to go. Let us go out to the highways, to the schools, to the universities, to the workplaces. Let us go to our families and to our friends. And with rejoicing, let us tell them that our King has come with glad hearts. Let our rejoicing be a testimony of our belief, of our seer understanding and belief and hope that we have that our King has come. And with glad receiving hearts, tell them of the glorious things our King has done and is doing in His kingdom. Let us do that with rejoicing. 
Let us do that with, with hearts of gladness. Because His kingdom has come, and His kingdom will have no end. So rejoice with me, brothers and sisters, for our greater King has come. Amen. Uh, if you'll stand with me, let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word testifies of Your glorious kingship. We thank You that Your Word preaches, Lord, that You are a better King. You are the King who was long awaited for. You are the King whom Your people long for and hope for. And You have come. Lord, and You have come conquering and to conquer. What a glorious truth. Lord, would we have hope in Your rule. Father, would we put our faith in Your promises that by Your promise You are working as King to bring about all the things that You have promised Your people and that we have hope in, knowing that You will redeem Your people and You will redeem Your creation. God, let this truth not go into our ears and out so swiftly. Lord, would this truth lead us to hunger for more of You. Hunger for more of Your truth. Hunger to see Your working hand in the lives around us. Working to see Your kingdom bring about the glory of Your name in every aspect of our life. Lord, in our conduct, within the law, within all of our traditions. Lord, would You help the truth of Your rule to impact every aspect of our life. That Your name would be glorified. Lord, would Your name be lifted up as Your people go out, gladly receiving and proclaiming that You are our King. That You have come. And You are ruling over Your kingdom. We thank You for this glorious truth. In Jesus' name I pray. If our uh, communion servers would uh, go ahead and come and prepare to serve. Now, I was looking at the this text. It's a very short text. And um, because of that, the study went deep. Because <laughs> uh, minute sermon. Um, but the more that I looked into it, I thought, what more do the people need to hear sometimes in the that their King has come. And I thought, how beautiful if we just keep it simple to the truth that Christ preached or taught to His people in this moment that made them glad. And because of that truth, we can gladly now come to the table and continue to be fed and nourished by the body and the blood of our King, our Christ, who offered His body and blood as a sacrifice for us and now sustains us by it. What a glorious, gracious truth that we can joyfully come and partake in. So if you're here this morning and you have put all of your trust in Christ to deliver you from your sin, not your own works, but His works and what He has done, then we welcome you to come to the table this morning. If you have not done that this morning, then we highly encourage you to remain, abstain from the table this morning.
Not because we want to keep you from something good, because actually quite the contrary. Scripture tells us that to drink of the, take of the body and blood of Christ unworthily is to drink condemnation upon yourself. But we don't want you to sit there. We don't want you to remain in, un, in, in condemnation if that is you. If, if that is you this morning, I encourage you after the service, come find Pastor Dave, come find me, and we'd love to share with you and talk with you about the glorious grace we found in Jesus Christ. So, uh, if you will go ahead and come to the table, we will uh, take it together shortly. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians what Christ left for us. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's take the bread. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us take the cup. Father, we are thankful. Oh, so thankful of your body and blood which was offered for us. Lord, would you renew our hearts and our minds by this truth, by this uh, moment of thanksgiving which you have given to us to remember your glorious grace. Let us find hope in your kingship, Lord, as your people in your kingdom. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you'll place your hands in a receiving position, the benediction I have for you this morning comes from Revelation uh, 17, 14. It says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Go in... Go... In the power of your King this day, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.